Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the New Books Network podcast. We hit a million downloads last month. We were one of the only podcasts that didn't have an actual downtick in listeners during uh, the pandemic. So we're very thankful to all of our listeners at home, new new and old, um, who have stuck around with us throughout everything and hope we've provided you with some intellectual stimulation and conversation while you've been sheltering in place. I have got a treat today. We are joined by one of my favorite people in the communication world, and that is Teresa Bergman. Dr. Bergman's book, The Commemoration of Women in the United States, Remembering Women in Public Space, was published by Rutledge. And uh, the book essentially, you know, obviously like it's a United States context, and it examines the public memorialization of women in the U.S. over the past century. So the whole century we're covered in this book, and it, but it particularly focuses on the late 20th century and into the early 21st, so present moment. And the analysis centers on six different case studies or examples of memorialization, exploring broad themes of cultural representation. And that the central argument is that the construction or relocation of a series of prominent national memorials together that have also been relocated form a significant moment of change in the ways in which women are commemorated in the United States. The historic and present day challenges facing such commemorization are examined in the book with reference to broader political debates. Um, And and the case studies in this book are broad and deep. There is, uh, let's see, um, the Women in the Military Service for America Memorial, uh, the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park, the Women's Rights National Historical Park, and the Eleanor Roosevelt statue in the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial, as well as uh, there's some stuff about Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So there's a lot for everyone. And of course, I'm in Rochester, where... um, some of these people spoke and are now buried. So this was a cool book to read in terms of the history of the region where I am. So I, that's all I'm going to say for now because we have a lot to discuss. And uh, Teresa, are you there? Do you want to say hello to the listeners and tell them more about the book? Sure. Hi. Great. Thanks, Lee. Yeah. Happy to be here. This book was um, hard to write, um, a pleasure to write, and just pulled together so many different parts of my background from moving from my work in documentary film and communication and cultural studies and rhetoric and which all came together, have have all come together around representation. And looking at these sites made me think more deeply than I ever had about how women are represented in the public space and especially in commemoration and patriotism. And this whole book was it came out of my first book, um, Exhibiting Patriotism, which was a larger book at uh, sites across the country and the way we were representing patriotism writ large. And during my research for that book, I noticed from the late 80s, 90s, into the 2000s, um, there were a couple of memorials being built to women. 
And after a meeting with some professor friends, we were joking around and saying, well, somebody should really write a book about uh, commemoration of women. And the big joke that I cracked was it would be a slim volume <laughs> because there are so few. So that's, that's what got me going, got me excited about it. I wanted to see in this relatively conservative field of commemoration, because it comes, especially on a national level, well, actually on just about every level, because of all the folks involved, the amount of money needed, um, it, it tends to be a conservative type of enterprise. But when we move into commemorating women, all kinds of other issues got opened up. Like, well, which women? Which patriotism? Um, all kinds of questions that weren't or haven't been interrogated quite as deeply, especially when we commemorate, we have a history of commemorating war heroes, men on horses, um, presidents, but not all presidents and not all war heroes, but mostly men. So moving into this became a, a real challenge for me, um, especially initially, uh, of how to tee it up. What, what kinds of questions did I need to ask? What kinds of uh, systems on so many levels were in place to empower who got represented, um, who got left out, and which parts of the lives get represented? It was... Um, in many ways, a much harder book to write than exhibiting patriotism. Because once we move into representing the underrepresented mm -hmm. in any kind of minority, rep minority representation, it, it's so much more complicated. And that's what um, inspired my book and got me going. Yeah, and you, and you open up with um, this concept of beyond allegory, because there's sort of like um, the difference between actual women and then trying to, to, and then what happens to that actual woman when that actual woman has to become part of national myth? Uh, and then what are, what are the costs of doing something like that? So that I think that sort of speaks to this, this how much more complex this book was. Um, although I will say you made it look easy. So oh. do you, <laughs> it was an easy read. I loved it. So do you want to say a little bit more about that allegorization, which is the big sort of theoretical linchpin of the book, or would you rather move into a, a case study? Oh, I just have one other short sure. um, a response to that. Right when, I, when I would speak to other people while I was writing my book, doing my research, and particularly more conservative scholars, and I would say something to the effect that I'm not just researching allegories, the scales of justice, Lady Liberty, but why are there so few monuments and commemoration of women? And over and over, it would be the response from these guys would be along the lines of, well, they really, they haven't done anything. Yeah, yeah, you haven't, what, what, you were, what have you been doing? You've just been birthing babies while the rest of us were doing the hard work of nation building. So you don't get, you don't get a statue. <laughs> and, and it left me, you know, you gotta decide, are you gonna have a fight? Are you gonna be flat-footed? Or I just sort of took that energy into my research. It's like, all right, let's answer this question full on so nobody um, who's thought about it for a good five seconds can say that answer again. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's in terms of research, I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty in irrefutable 
right by the end of this book like and you i mean you'd have you, i mean honestly well those people probably won't read the book in the first place but certainly if you go into it with with some kind of uh misconception that women have just been on the sidelines of history in the u.s you will be sorely mistaken so with that said you chose to start with um eleanor roosevelt you call yeah. her you call her the book's coda which i thought was very cool right um do you oh. want to maybe tell us more about eleanor as a jumping off point and why she winds up being the the first figure in the book that you look at? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good question. And one of the interesting points about this is I wasn't even going to include her initially because she was so clearly a last minute addition to the FDR memorial. Oh. oh, okay. And that and that was when, when I was trying to figure out what my, um, what site I wanted to study, she wasn't on the list. And um, some colleagues pointed out to me that in 2012, when they did a count of the number of um, representations of women of memorials, remember spots to women in the uh, DC corridor, it was only 6% of everything was to women. And the Eleanor Roosevelt statue in the FDR memorial was in that count. So mm -hmm. I realized, well, I shouldn't, I, I need to revisit that decision because at such a low number, and if that's counting, let's, let's start to see what's going on there and interrogate me. Why, why was I dismissing it and not taking it um, as a commemoration to a site to that commemorated women? And my research did bear out that this uh, site, the FDR Memorial, the commission started in 1955. They broke ground in 1991. So this was like one of the longest commissions ever <laughs> to um, debating endlessly um, what this memorial would be. But after several designs were let go and the one that was finally adopted in by Lawrence Halpern, the piece that became interesting was about, it, it, even when he gave his um, plans to the uh, Arts Commission, Eleanor wasn't in it, and she got added during the planning process. So the very first time that any mention of including Eleanor shows up in 1991. This is really, really far along. They had the whole thing uh, mapped out before terms of his presidency and she really she gets added in the last room and it is that room is referred to as a coda because that's the room where they portray uh, FDR's death and that's where that title came from and I thought it was a, a great, great way to describe how she got added and that layers in so nicely with the way we study uh, women's history the kind of first stage is like oh yeah Women were there too. It's sort of compensatory. We'll we'll take note that you were there. So she gets added, and just one very small piece of her life gets represented yeah. as a represent as a representative of the UN. And that was way towards the end of her life, and leaves so much else out. I mean, the good news is that she has other locations that commemorate her now since mm -hmm. then. But as a Opening chapter for my book, it does illustrate compensatory representation where 
we women in particular and this is that's women's history and you certainly could extend it i think to any people of color are a last minute addition yeah they're not part of the whole story they aren't integrated into the fabric and the long uh, trends in place that got them to that place of time and that that ability to achieve what they did yeah and this chapter is really fascinating because you talk about uh, her, her as someone who challenges like norms of propriety in productive ways as an advocate for social justice, right? Uh, and so it's cool, right? Because you use the code as a launching off point as sort of like a concept metaphor for the whole way women get treated. But then the book really pushes back against that by um, by filling in some of the gaps in the ways when these women haven't been memorialized. So it, it's a nice combination of, of sort of history, biography, social justice, but then also these readings of the monuments, which give it that extra unique edge. So is there anything oh, else you, you. want to, because yeah, because the part on Eleanor Roosevelt isn't, um, isn't super long, but it's fascinating and it sets up the framework for the book. So we could stay here if you want to talk a little bit more about Eleanor. If not, uh, I really loved the chapter on the portrait monument. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the few monuments in this book I'd actually seen firsthand. And it was one of those things where it's like now watching you reread the monument was very cool because I got a new, fresh perspective. And, and I saw things, some things I had thought about already, but some things I was like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. So I'm sad that we don't have the, that the that the listeners can't see the images. But this is why you get the book, right? So you can see the images. Yeah. So, so tell me about the portrait monument and um, its its radical message, as you say. It, it really is just an amazing story. And um, when one, one woman described it as the most torturous path to getting um, represented in congressional art, it's true. What that monument went through to be where it is today is really just this amazing story. Of um, So it starts really in, uh, in the 1880s. And in the 1890s, when Adelaide Johnson, the sculptress, was completely and totally, and, and those words aren't even enough <laughs> to, to describe how excited this woman was to uh, sculpt Susan B. Anthony. She just thought, this, this woman is just amazing, and, we, um, and what she has done for women in general is endlessly inspiring. And that led to her to actually get the commission to sculpt her bust for the World's Fair, uh, away from the radar calf, who was like the preeminent sculptor at the time. And she was new and up and coming. And then moving quickly through history, not to get too bogged down, but Alice Paul um, of the National Women's Party, who a lot of people might know her as the person who was in, um, uh, who went, was chained herself to the White House, uh, protesting Wilson and his opposition to suffrage. And she went on hunger strike and they had to force feed her. And she was the radical edge of the women's movement at the time. She hired Adelaide Johnson to um, sculpt, um, come up with a sculpture to commemorate passage of suffrage, the 19th Amendment. And so that in and of itself caused all kinds of problems in the women's movement, because even then there were splits. There was a more conservative wing and Alice Paul was a more radical wing. So Adelaide Johnson comes in via the radical wing and she ends up sculpting something that um, 
not even Alice Paul saw coming. <laughs> the way she put it together, as all the heads connected, all the busts connected, as opposed to separate busts, which is, at least from everything I read, is what Alice Paul kind of ex expected. But she went, she rolled with it. It's good. All right. It's good. We'll have it. It's, it was eight, it is eight tons of Italian Carrera marble um, sculpted in Italy, shipped over. And um, Alice Paul is negotiating, negotiating relentlessly with the Senator Frank Renji to get it into the capital, the national capital. And he voted against suffrage. And he is coming up with every excuse, making them up. He came up with excuse after excuse why this thing couldn't be accepted. Um, Alice Paul decides, all right, I'm just, she has it. Um, this is uh, taken through the streets of Washington, D.C. on a horse-drawn carriage, dumped right at the door of the Capitol, eight tons, sitting there, waiting for commemoration. Renji finally relents. Uh, the next day, it is, in fact, uh, dedicated. And the day after that, moved to the basement. And at that and Alice Paul declared victory. She was, it's in the Capitol. She, we won. Women won. Um, at the time, the basement was called the Crypt in uh, the National Capitol because that was originally intended to be where Washington, George Washington's ashes were to be kept. They're not, but it's often called the Crypt, the basement, if you're in Europe, the first floor. So whenever you read everything, it's either in one of those three places and that's all the same place. So it stayed in the uh, basement crypt um, until uh, 1993 and when it finally gets enough movement, enough senators to pass a legislation to get it moved back up into the rotunda. And there'd been three other um, failed attempts in between time. And it's not as if it's, it sat there unused, which, which is, I found really interesting. Um, women's group celebrated Susan B. Anthony's birthday in front of it in the basement. There was various dedications. There were, during all the activities of the women's movement throughout the 20th century, lots of stuff happened there. So then it's ready to be moved back into the Rotunda in the 90s. And um, C. Dolores Tucker um, decides, voices concern that um, Black women, so Jared True, should be included. It shouldn't just be white women. And that there was a room on this uh, sculpture to, to carve in her face too. And so everything stops. And it takes basically into the early 2000s to resolve that when they build and the sculpture couldn't hold another bust in one of the research that took place. Um, there was pushback about whether the, it could be moved up there again, that that raised its head again. And the compromise was to put, uh, put the sculpture back up there around the edge of the rotunda where there was more structural support and to build a standalone separate statue for Sojourner True in Emancipation Hall, which was a new part added to um, the Capitol. So it finally made it back. And it was and another part of it, in addition to this 
really difficult um, history of where this thing was going to live. What I found so interesting about studying this and, and looking at the ways in which what this represented to people, what were people reading in this statue, in, in this big commemorative statue? And instead of just being straightforward, especially initially, as opposed to women getting the vote, and that was this was, it was by no means a unanimous vote, it was close vote in the Senate. People would put their criticism in terms of aesthetics for years after years after years, and it was ugly, it didn't, um, it, it, it was demeaning, it, it wasn't pleasant to look at, it didn't have artistic merit. And then there would be the other side saying, no, wait, 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 not true. <laughs> it's got, there's um, a larger story here that we're not used to seeing and seeing represented. We are not used to seeing a women's movement represented, which is the uh, unsculpted bottom portion. We're used to seeing single statues. And that was conveniently ignored <laughs> by people who, um, really did not want the statue of the Capitol, really wanted to keep it out. So we have uh, years and years, or decades and decades of criticism of its aesthetics and um, very little about meaning. Meaning always gets subsumed in, in this argument until the 90s. And then that's a really interesting change because then it's not about the aesthetics anymore. It's about race. And why, where are the women of color? Why are there only white women being commemorated? And that's a really different discussion, and a discussion we should be having. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were not shy about their racism. Um, so these are very, this is a very legitimate discussion that needed to take place, needs to take place, and um, caught folks a little flat footed at the time because they've been fighting so long yeah. just to get this thing back up into the rotunda right. and to commemorate a women's right to vote, then it, it really it took a, a, a good another 10 years yeah. to get this next piece figured out. Um, so I don't, I actually don't normally ask questions about the book writing process, but like I've always been a huge fan of yours and I'm obviously, the, and I'm in the middle of finally getting my book out. And so I'm, I'm more attuned to that stuff. And I do wonder like that must have been really frustrating for you to to try to relive this history with these women and just repeatedly face defeat and also see. And I think one thing that really comes out of this book is is how hard it is for women to be intersectional throughout history because every time it's hard enough to get the white women on the now on top of that we want to add such inner truth and then and then the way that like aesthetics already privileges white men so so right people hide behind this and I thought you pulled those threads out nicely throughout the book. And I just kept thinking, I wonder how she does it. Cause this book is frustrating. It's a frustrating read. Uh, it always ends in like kind of a good place, but really once you know what went on, you kind of look at the memorial and you're like, well, <laughs> I guess it's like a third, it's like a second, it's always like a second best choice right now that these things. And I just wonder how do you handle that as an author? And how did you like, like they go through that trial as you were trying to tell this story? That's a really good question, Lee. And it, you reminded me about one point about Eleanor Roosevelt, too, uh -huh. that kind of tie into this as well, because I get real frustrated with her as well. And she and Alice Paul were um, enemies. They were political oh. enemies. Oh. And very late in Eleanor Roosevelt's life, because Alice Paul started working on the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1920s, you know, right after uh, suffrage. 
And Eleanor Roosevelt opposed it all the way. And it's like, what's wrong, Eleanor? Why are you opposing this? And it, it took quite a bit of research and reading through Eleanor Roosevelt's writings and all the women that were involved with the Portrait Monument, their definitions of appropriate behavior are different. And that's what takes me a long time to, to, to suss all of that out. So for Eleanor Roosevelt, it, it wasn't teeing up the discussion in terms of equality. That was not the issue for her. The issue was that women need more protection. They have children. They have more responsibilities. They aren't as physically strong as men. So no, they should not be treated equally. They should be treated differently because they're different. That's a very different argument than the way it has been. I had previously known her position as just opposing the ERA. That was she wasn't opposed to um, women working outside the home, women working. It's just that they needed more protection than sure. men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is that takes a while to, to get to understand that, and, mm-hmm. and especially with someone as. Um, Oh, media savvy as Alice Paul. Yeah, right. Um, coming up against that fight over and over again, trying to understand both of their positions and, and what they're arguing for. And Eleanor Roosevelt does come around, and she does eventually realize that uh, and the ERA could work, that um, labor unions were strong enough to protect men and women in ways that they weren't before. And so she does. She moves completely and. Um, in the 50s endorses the ERA. When the, the other place I go when I'm working through all of this and, and under trying to under contextualize deeply, radically contextualize everything that I'm looking at is understanding how deep misogyny and racism and elitism is. It's nothing new. It's always been around. And my challenge as an author and a researcher and is to capture that and how is it being represented how is it being acted on how is it being expressed in the times that i'm looking at because it's always different right and yeah always there so there's and and i i i I enjoy that part (laughs) i like that (laughs) i like figuring that out i like seeing the different contours and then seeing what the reaction is because once you get something you know you know, women get the vote, you're going to get a huge pushback. And look, okay, what kind of pushback was that? Sure. And and trying to see the specifics, I just find tremendously insightful for understanding the contemporary moment. Right. How, what's going on right now? It's like, oh, that's coming off of this. And and once I can start to see all of that, um, it gives me a better understanding, especially in terms of rhetoric, what was even possible at the time. Ah, okay. So that, yeah, that's so, so having that vantage point makes, makes waiting through this, you're more, the curiosity takes over the dismay in a way. Right, right. Always dismay, no matter what. (laughs) Sure. But there's something else, there's something else with it that keeps you moving through the book. Yeah. Yeah, because I really do think um, that's a nice thing about my rhetorical training is you really just need to see what's even possible. Yeah. In the particular context. Well, and then and then we actually get sort of like optimistic as the book kind of progresses, right? Um, and then I actually really, I, I mean, 
I think we have enough time. I don't want to not talk about the Rosie the Riveter because I thought that was an awesome chapter, but it comes at the end. But since we're already kind of talking about optimism, why don't we talk about your work on the, the Women's Rights National Historic Park? Okay, or, or I don't want to run out of time. I actually would rather talk about the military. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's do that. I just want to make sure we hit um we we hit the highlights because unfortunately, like again, this book is so dense that we we can't talk about everything. So we're gonna to have to pick. Yeah, let, let's if sure. you have time. Yeah, we got lots of time. Well, let's come back to that one. Yeah. Um. Yeah, because this this is the first. Because you do what two war memorial monuments? Yeah. So this was one of the war memorial monuments you look at. Mm-hmm. So what I looked at was the uh, Vietnam, Vietnam Women's Memorial. Yeah and the Women in Military Service for America Memorial. And what was that, what was so interesting about that is because they became um, fascinating bookends for uh, women in the military and how they're getting represented. And this is because um, traditionally women have only been nurses and all the war commemoration is women as nurses and the Vietnam um, Women's Memorial is there are nurses there. But it was the history of that particular memorial is, is is anything but traditional. And then we have at the same time the plans for the Women in um, Military Service for America getting going and that getting um, dedicated in the nineteen in the nineteen nineties. Just uh, back to theory for a minute. What I found so challenging about writing about um, how we commemorate women in the military is that I needed to really investigate the kinds of how narratives were working for these two sites in particular, and to a lesser degree, the Resident Riveter site, because one of the challenges for me is whether a militarist narrative is a gendered narrative. That's what I found myself uh, initially. Mm-hmm. So is, are these sites that unquestionably represent and celebrate the U.S. in war, is that a gendered narrative? Sure. We have had, we've had plenty of people do research that claim that. And I was wondering, as I was beginning my research and thinking about women that can now serve in combat, and what women have gone through in the fights that women have gone through in the military to achieve that, the long long achievement, because you can't, there's a whole range of promotions you can't get unless you had a live combat experience. So by keeping women out of combat, it kept women, it permanently prevented them from uh, moving up the ranks. So it seemed like, wait, something's going on here in terms of feminism, in terms of rights, that is specific to military um, that needs to be looked at and needs to be examined and within the context of a militarist narrative. And that was, that was a, a big challenge because when I look at um, history of women, you know, we're always looking at the kinds of stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. This one is kind of subsumed, but not completely subsumed. Because women um, that are serving in the military and all the biographies that I read are could not be prouder. Um, they sought it out. All of the reasons that men go to military for a career, for um, social economic status, um, 
everything is the same stories I'm getting for women and they finally have those opportunities and uh, could not have been prouder for achieving that and, and the kinds of achievements that they got. So that became um, a, a really interesting look at how we commemorate women in the military. And we're still, we're at the front end of this, honestly, because um, women serving in live combat, it was, uh, oh gosh, that was in the early 2000s when that finally got passed under Obama. And they were just beginning to commemorate women in combat, essentially. So what we have is the, um, the Vietnam Women's Memorial that is it's a really interesting set of circumstances of how it came to be because it was in some ways a reaction to the wall but with a, a big sideways intervention there because uh, Maya Lin's wall which is fabulous and just this amazing site um caused controversy still is causing controversy and engendered um, more memorials to be built on this Vietnam Vets memorial site in on the mall in DC. And one of the first responses, um, uh, see under Bush, James Watt, was um, the uh, Frederick Hart Memorial. And this is uh, the three uh, the three soldiers standing there, and they're metaphorical. And there's a flag a flagpole. And it's much more the traditional kind of commemoration. And that was in direct response to the wall. That the wall was too sad. It couldn't be as sad. And it looks like we lost the war. Oh my God, the truth. <laughs> and we can't do a commemoration like that. Yeah, so then, well, and it's so fascinating because this is like a moment. Um, and of course, you know, the, the book is under so again, the book gets this, but since we're glossing over stuff, but at this moment we're sort of like the sentiment everyone had been pushing down or disavowing emerges in the rhetorical construction of the text. And so it's this cool kind of like, gotcha, <laughs> using your rhetorical chops to notice these things appearing. Yeah, so this was a very cool part of the reading. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Because what happens, so when we have uh, James Watt coming in and authorizing in record time, yeah, within um, less than uh, 12 months, this new thing gets approved and uh, built. We, um, the women who were working, had been working for a while on the Vietnam Women's Memorial um, saw an opportunity and they took advantage and said, well, hey, Frederick Hart is just commemorating men. We should commemorate the women that served in Vietnam too. So they're, they're rhetorical tactic was to in opposition to the Hart Memorial, whereas the Hart Memorial is in opposition to the wall. So this is an interesting opening that was, um, it, they were very smart. They took advantage of the time. They took advantage of um, increasing recognition of women and, and women's rights and the women's movement and were successful. And basically we're able to, to sway everyone that this, um, a separate memorial needed to be built to the women who served in Vietnam at the time. And there's no question in my mind that would not have happened if it hadn't been for the Frederick Hart case of the three men standing there. So at the same time, 
Um, it, it was, then we get this memorial. That's a pretty, actually, traditional memorial. And it was very controversial, even in the competition, how this thing is going to look. But they end up, instead of with an actual woman, you get three metaphorical women. And the primary look at it is of, of the Pieta, of um, them saving and taking care of a soldier, a wounded soldier. So it's, it's very traditional representation of women. It's We're not um, breaking new ground other than recognition that women were in the war and did um, duty and had service during the war. When we get over to the women in the military service in Arlington National Cemetery, that becomes a whole different endeavor. And this one is supposed to represent women since the Revolutionary War until the present and everything that, that we have done when it comes to military service from you know, following the um, horses and the wagons with food to care of their loved ones all the way to um, combat. And it is a uh, gigantic undertaking and it's this amazing sight. And I, on, on one hand, I um, worry about the site because it is so big and it has museum elements to it as well. And um, they've definitely had some um, issues just keeping up maintenance because it's such a large site and it has so many different pieces inside of it. And um, it, it, it's a big deal. The thing that is most impressive, and I would urge everybody who goes to DC and, and goes over to Arlington to walk over to this memorial because the building itself is magnificent. They did the smartest thing. They took this hemicycle is sort of like it's half a quarter circle that's into the hillside of the cemetery and and it was it was an our a garden kind of addition you know a very um 20th century kind of thing and they uh broke through the top and completely broke the glass ceiling and made it all glass and etched in all these fabulous quotes in this, this really thick glass that lets all this light into the room. And it's just these quotes of amazing women and men about the role of women in military and service throughout the years. And so the, the site itself is metaphorical. We have broken to the ceiling and it's glass. And they they did a beautiful job in restoring the space. And it... It's a, it does feel like a work in progress, which in many ways is what's going on with women right now in the military. Because uh, if you you do research on women in the military now, it's pretty fraught. And this is not an easy transition. You know, think if you had, you know, since the founding of the country, only men could have leadership roles. And now, you know, since 2006, women can too. It, the transition's rough. It, it's a real rough. It's very hard on a, a lot of women in the military. Clearly proud of, of what they've done. But the, the main suggestion I make in the book and the main uh, critique is that it's, the site is, is very celebratory. Like many historical museums, it's everything's good. And most women, especially the ones I meet now, I have a lot of vets in my classes. 
that they'll tell you how hard it is that it's not all it's not easy at all for women in the military yeah so so um well it's also interesting i don't know that, that it's a museum i mean you made a comment earlier that it's not just the size of it but also the fact it's a museum could you because i don't know that i actually had thought about that that maybe like memorializing something as a monument is different than a museum and why might the museum kind of like contribute to this one-dimensional memorial that we have to women in the military and right right no it's a really good question because you can um into this hemicycle you can walk this one long hallway and it has all these rooms and it's the exhibits in particular that contribute to this particular narrative of um success yeah so it's not necessarily that all museums do that but that the but that the exhibits chosen for this museum all kind of lean in that direction mm -hmm. exactly exactly it's very it's very celebratory all of the huh. um, the, the glass case exhibits the um anything on the walls it's all there it, it's all celebratory by interesting celebrating well in addition you know to the u.s so Right. Um, exploits. There's everything, all the quotes, all of um, anything that has any kind of representation of individual experience is the positive kind of representation. Sure. Uh, when they're speaking to what they were able to do, and the overwhelming message that we get is um, that women are just as good as men in the military. Absolutely, over and over and over again. Yeah. There's even though, even if they refer to their children or their husbands or family, it's yeah, I can do everything. I'm just as good as men. Um, uh -huh. This is my problem. Does it hold me back? It is um, equality, equality, equality is, is the dominant message. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because like I said, the only museum that I was uh, firsthand familiar with was the Portrait Museum. So walking through this museum with your eyes, uh, or, or sorry, yeah, the Portrait portrait Monument. So walking through this memorial m museum for the war um, with your eyes through the book was really interesting. I'm, I'm excited to actually get to go there when things open up again and, and see what that feels like firsthand. And what you remind me of is the these this politics of optimism. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's what I talk about in the um, the the National Rights Memorial, the, the in, park. Yeah. In Seneca Falls. Yeah. Where, um, which I haven't been to, and Seneca Falls is like right there. So I don't know what I'm doing, but I really need to get my get my ass up there. <laughs> That's where the Declaration of Sentiments is passed. Mm -hmm. And I actually have a signed copy of a printout of the Declaration of Sentiment with Shirley Chisholm's signature on it. No. Yeah. So she was, uh, yeah, my mom got it when she was up there. Chisel happened to be there getting something dedicated and my mom brought it home for me. So that's my office. Oh, that's, that's incredibly cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah, yeah but we haven't talked much about the women's rights, um, historical park. Do you, do you want to keep going with the war memorial? Do you feel like we, we hit everything or do you want to yeah. switch over to that was plenty. Okay. Yeah. Then let's, then let's hit the women's rights national historical park and then finish with the Rosie of the river. Um, and the, and the social and this, um, this like social construction of power, right? That's right. Really cool. All right. So the, uh, the National Women's Rights, um, National, wait, the Women's Rights National Historical Park. <laughs> it's really long. 
is um, it, it actually really is a minor miracle that it even exists. There was it started under Carter and almost was ground to a halt and stopped under Reagan, but did manage uh, through just really the work of uh, a pretty small group of women uh, who were working their way through the National Park Service to make this thing happen and to bring in all kinds of outside help to um, commemorate the, where the Wesleyan Chapel, where the Declaration of Sentiments um, Convention took place, to reclaim another building for a visitor center, and to preserve several of the houses of the women that were involved in um, drafting and the convention to pass the Declaration of Sentiments, which is the um, Declaration of Independence with all the he's replaced with she. That's the Declaration of Sentiments, essentially. It's very straightforward. It's not complicated. And um, oh, a little over 100 people went and uh, a little over 100 signatures. And by the time they were done and they came out and it got covered in the paper, almost all of them had withdrawn their signatures. They got so, so much blowback from supporting the uh, Declaration of Independence for women, essentially. So this is a really interesting park. It's, um, it's a great place to go in Seneca Falls. It's uh, three miles of the, basically in the city center along the canal from Elizabeth Cady Stanton's house um, all the way to the north. And what you get is a feel for what these women's lives were like, what everyone you know, walked to all these different places. And this was the area where there was big, big, um, all kinds of uh, movements going on. And it's called the Burned Over District. It was part of New York because there was so much activity for temperance and abolition. And most of it was coming out of um, the religious community. And this is one of the reasons that the Stantons moved there. And this came together, this mix of abolitionists, uh, people fighting for temperance, and um, religious folks for equality for um, women as well as um, African slaves, all came together in this area. And it, it was by no means an easy kind of coalition, is one way to think about it now. It, even the idea that getting the vote was the most important, there wasn't even agreement on that. Um, some women thought that the most important thing was wages because they were paid so much more or less, much less than men. Um, other women thought that the laws for um, divorce and uh, children were more important than the vote because when we got divorced, then children went with the, the ex-husband, not the woman, under all circumstances. Um, and they wanted that to be the focus. So it was really, there were all kinds of competing interests on what needed to happen for equality, for any kinds of equality or equity to take place. Eventually, Susan B. Anthony joined this fight after the Declaration of Sentiments. She, she wasn't there for that. So before she met Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But they did, Lucretia Mott was the, one of the key organizers, uh, Jane Powell, and um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton did get the Declaration of Sentiments passed, 
which began the long fight towards uh, women's suffrage. And what's really interesting, and, and what I found, and this kind of reminds me of your earlier question, Lee, about um, sort of getting frustrated when I read the historical documents and I'm trying to understand the context of the time and what exactly was possible versus what ends up getting represented. There was, the, the, the visitor center is, is so incredibly positive at this site. It just glosses over so many of these really interesting issues that are still with us today. And especially at paying any attention to the women's movement and women's rights, these have been in the works since then. And it, it's this great opportunity to, to really sort of lay that out in ways that I think would help everybody understand why is it so hard for equal rights amendment to pass? Why is this so complicated? You would think it would be incredibly straightforward, but it never was, is what you find out when you read all of this and you, and you see the competing interests um, from the beginning and that unity was always um, out there. It was never a part of the, um, from the beginning, there was no unified women's movement and it as always was intersectional and depended on your experience, sort of where your priorities were. Yeah. So one of the things that um, was, a little, I don't, I don't want to be too critical because it's an important site and I think people should visit it and you need to learn this part of history, but I, it's, 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 it's so positive. It's so unbelievably positive about the history and this united, um, all women locked in arms moving forward and, uh, with no stops along the way towards equality. That's the overwhelming message you get there, which is nice and not true, but nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know, we're also at a, a period in history where that narrative uh, is harmful to some women, right? They hear it and they feel very disenfranchised. And so I think it's great if you go there and it makes you feel good about being a woman, you know, but like I'm intersex. And so when I look at stuff like this and I'm a woman, it's like, well, I, we, but we all know I wasn't part of this. I'm not this woman, right? So I think it's great to like be happy. I mean, I'm still excited that this stuff happened, you know, but you can also kind of be like, and it's, and there's still work to do. And, and this was history and, and we've learned and now we, we just can't, that's the thing. Just don't keep repeating the same narratives, right? I mean, that's part of what's cool about the book is, is in fact, you showed that there's so many fraught fractures where different things could have happened that didn't happen but maybe now could, because maybe we're in a place in history where maybe some of these questions that couldn't get addressed in the old monuments could now get looked at, right? I think that's what's kind of interesting is it's almost like a choose your own adventure and this is how history went down, but we've got many more years of history making that could maybe do something else, yeah. Yeah, and I think once, one of the big lessons I took away from writing this book and all the research that I did is once you do start commemorating women, it opens the door to so many more questions. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I like that a lot. I think um, uh, uh, from my previous book, I interviewed the head, one of the former heads of the National Park Service. And, and we were getting into this. And, and I was asking him about um, Native American representation and, and how we do it so poorly in this country. And he said something to the effect, well, we're a young country. 
And, and I think that perspective is really interesting because oh. like travel in Europe, they uh, commemorate way better than we do. Yeah. It's much more creativity, a range of commemoration. Um, it, it's, I, I really hope that we are, and I do actually do think this is helping. It's beyond hope. I, I do see it that we're at a place now where we, it doesn't have to be so conformist. We really can look at different uh, people, different events um, to commemorate uh, in ways that we never have before. Have and, you and read that, um, Have you read Brad Vivian's book about witnessing? Yes. His conclusion about how mundane the design for the 9-11, how much work they put into creating a totally predictable monument, I think is so good because you really see how creative they thought this thing was. But yet from a rhetorical point of view, like they could not have picked any more ordinary tropes and figures to build, right? right, right these, these design plans. Um, and for those of you who haven't read Brad Vivian's book, he's one of my first actually new books uh, network interviews. So if you scroll way back to the beginning, the book is called uh, Commonplace Witnessing, I think. But yeah, another example of like a missed opportunity to do something cool with memorialization, but who knows moving forward what that might look like, right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, when they were, I went to the design competition. and the Oh, really? And because uh, I was really curious. What sure, they were yeah. Right. And, then, and I was worried because they were doing it so fast. Right. And yeah. That was part of the problem is you don't have perspective. Yeah. And some of the competitions with the other ones that didn't get chosen were beautiful. Yes. yes. Really evocative. Uh-huh. Um, creative and insightful. Um, so it's possible. And they made it to the final five. Mm. But just like um, Brad said, it, they didn't get chosen. Yeah. Well, I, again, I mean, I can't say enough good things about this book. We're coming up on time. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you really don't want to leave the interview without speaking about for a few minutes? Um, in addition to the, uh, the, the uh, Rosie the Riveter site? Do you want to spend the last few minutes talking about Rosie the Riveter? It's, uh, sure. Okay, yeah. Then let's spend the last few minutes there, and then we'll let everybody know where to get the book and how to contact you if they have questions. Okay. Do you want to set it up or...? Yeah. Um, well, I, I just really liked it because I've always, especially I think right now with the pandemic that Rosie the Riveter is coming back in full force. And I think you're seeing especially a lot of like nurses. Uh, and so when I read this chapter, I was sort of like, oh, it makes you suddenly see a lot of complex stirrings in something as simple as like, a, I'm a worker and I'm a woman kind of thing. Right. So I was excited to bring this chapter up because I think people, it's really going to resonate with people right now because that imagery is, is back and being reused. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I found just fascinating in this research was uh, beginning my story with talking about the, the actual memorial that the city of Richmond and their city council passed, and they put the money forward to build just um, this much smaller memorial just to the Rosies um, who worked on the home front in Richmond, how that intersected when the National Park Service got involved and bought... Um, Altogether, three former Kaiser shipyards, and to make it into a, a national park to the um, home front during World War II. And that shift in focus I found uh, fascinating and really interesting. And in some people thought it was great, and some people I noticed kind of lamented the move from just focusing on women. And I kind of had, and I wanted to decide, well, where did I weigh in on this? And as you walk through the memorials, you go through all the pieces, 
there's there's this overwhelming feeling of it's it, it clearly is not just to women. It's if if anything, one of the big messages it's to working class people and these kinds of jobs that um, evaporated. And what happened to all these people and what happened to the city of Richmond. So what we have is the original memorial um, becomes part of this larger national park site that commemorates the home front effort, which was men and women. And the main thing that holds it together is that they were all working class. And this was a move, a really interesting decision to make. And I, and I think it's been received pretty well by the folks who go and um, the public at large. As you move through all the sites and, and you learn about um, the, the mass migration to, to Richmond, the, uh, from especially African-Americans and living in this direction. So this town goes from under um, 20,000 to over 100,000 within two years. And this is really a boom town. This is like um, gold rush standards. And so many people are coming to Richmond at the time. And a good portion of the women who went to work, some were from um, working class jobs. And um, the, a lot were people were middle class women who were working, who were getting better, better jobs. A lot of the African-American women who came were moving from agricultural kind of work and made kind of work in moving a step up out of that. But there was still a lot of racism in terms of the kinds of jobs that um, African-Americans could get versus um, white workers could get. And the other thing that's very interesting in this, this park, when you get all this information and all this representation about what they were building and what they were doing is... Um, the men weren't really happy with the women taking all the jobs. This was not an easy transition here either. And um, they're reading these stories, these histories of the women who, who were working in the shipyards and how men would intentionally drop um, tools to hit them, to hurt them, um, and would be really difficult when they were not happy having all these rosies around. Sort of uh, this really interesting counter narrative to, um, yes, we're, you know, we can do it. It was, um, people were not welcome with open arms and especially African-American women. I think of, of everyone I read about their experiences, they, they were treated the worst in um, moving into this uh, home front um, kinds of jobs that were available, that were available to them and to women that hadn't been available before when they came to the site. And the other really interesting thing about going to the uh, Rosie the Riveter site is they have made so much of an effort to include intersectionality, and it's impressive. Not it, it's a relatively new site, and the site on uh, LGBTQ that exhibit was temporary, but every time I call, it's still there in the temporary site. So <laughs> it's not, um, it's not like it's not in a case, you know, or a right. exhibit, but yeah. they're still soliciting um, LGBTQ IA stories. Hmm. They, want, they have a, um, a oral history center that they're building there as well and compiling and the site. So there's a lot of sensitivity to, uh, from the beginning to yeah. intersectionality, that yeah. it's not just, 
women, it's not just white women, it's not just men, it's working class men. Every single intersection is considered as they work through that site. And that was a pleasure to see. Yeah, and I was happy to read that part because I didn't know much about this. I knew there was like a memorial sort of like happening, but um, that to me, the Rose and the Riveter always was one of the cooler iconographies in terms of what I think you could do with it. And you've seen it repurposed for all kinds of stuff and in some shitty ways uh, and also some very cool ways. And so it was neat to see that uh, this is the, the monument where they felt like they could really dig into some of the more complex identity issues. Yeah, and I think it also has to do with its location in Richmond. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, right. They, there's much more receptivity to that kind of thinking. Yeah, because they have a large minority right. population. They have all kinds of economic problems. It was, um, I think that, I think that's contributing to making it a really an, an interesting site and a, um, and and it's it, it does it has its fans, which is good. <laughs> it's really good. Every year they have this uh, competition where. Um, people come dressed up as a Rosie. Yeah. And they yeah. keep getting more and more people. I, I did a cartoon of me as a Rosie, but I wrote rhetoric on my arm <laughs> as a tattoo. <laughs> people loved it. Yeah. Well, I, again, I think we should probably wrap here. I like to respect the, the hour limit for most listeners. That seems to be their sweet spot. Um, so do you want to say anything else or maybe tell listeners where I have, I have your Facebook and your uh, Twitter usernames in the show notes. So if anybody does want to reach out to Teresa or I on Twitter, Facebook and connect, you can pop your show notes open in your app and we will be there. Uh, if you're on the web, you'll, you'll be looking at the page right now that has it. Is there anywhere else that people can get in touch with you or do you have another project or, well, this just came out right 2019. So you're probably still in the throes of getting this thing promoted, right? Yeah. Yes. I, I'm working on that. And, and I, I have started working on my third book, which is on Future directions of commemoration. You're, you're a machine. <laughs> Thank you. And then, and then um, well, well, great. And so hopefully uh, anyone interested, I would just like to remind you, you can pick up the book through Rutledge 2019. So fresh off the presses in, ac in academic years anyway. And I do like to remind people that uh, even though Rutledge is not a university press, they are one of the presses that works very closely with the New Books Network. And they also are one of the few places where ideas like Teresa's can get out with the kind of attention that they deserve, as opposed to like a, a trade publication where often we pay our own editing fees or worse yet, we just have to kind of like do our own editing, which, you know, that never works for us, 500, 400 page book. Uh, so Rutledge deserves a little bit of credit for this. And so we do encourage you to pick up the book to help support Rutledge. It's called The Commemoration of Women in the United States, Remembering Women in Public Space. And if you do not want to grab a copy for yourself, a wonderful thing to do is pick up a hard copy. Uh, it's currently $30 off on the Rutledge website. I checked before we started and donate it to your local library. And then that way these ideas can live on and people who don't have access to this kind of stuff can pick it up. You can also, if you don't have that kind of money either, you can also request that the library um, put in a copy, even a digital edition for circulation. So Teresa, I just want to thank you again. The book was fabulous. The interview was even better. And I'm really excited for the third book. So chop, chop. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, take care. All right, we'll talk soon. Bye-bye.